Today's episode comes to you from South Royalton, Vermont, where we visit with Gio Honingford of Hurricane Flats Farm. He's grown mixed vegetables, popcorn, and hay for 26 years. He also made the decision to sell his farm just a few years ago and pursue a different career path. I thought this was unique and wanted to chat with him about this decision to sell and pivot into a new chapter in life. We start off by learning his background and experience at the top of the episode. Then we spend a significant part of the conversation talking about popcorn, as Hurricane Flats is the only farm I know growing that crop in Vermont. And I've experimented with growing it myself and curious what it takes to grow beyond the hand scale of experimentation. We wrap up the end of the episode with additional tips and takeaways reflecting on farming as a career. Before we get started, I wanted to share a review left on Apple Podcasts. It starts off by saying, a hidden gem. I have been listening to this show since the early days and feel lucky to have discovered it, especially with how great the format is now with the full farm tours and probing questions. I listen to multiple farm podcasts, and this is the one I look forward to coming out the most every month. Wow. Thanks so much, Bland Family Farm. I appreciate the comment, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Thanks for being a longtime listener. If this show has impacted you, I'd love to hear it via email or publicly as a review in the podcast app. The Farmer's Share is supported by the Vermont Vegetable and Berry Growers Association and the Ag Engineering Program of the University of Vermont Extension. If you enjoy this show and want to help support its programming, you can make a one-time or reoccurring donation on our website by visiting thefarmersshare.com support. Now, let's get to the show. Uh, um, Geo Honeyford, otherwise known as Tom, that's my correct name, um, or my government name, as my daughter would say. Uh, we're in South Royalton, Vermont, um, in my house. So thanks for coming on the show. It's, yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> yeah, as you as well. We had a, we owned 37 acres, um, and we did about 12 acres of intensive vegetables, uh, a lot of sweet corn, um, popcorn. Uh, and then we also made a lot of hay. Uh, so we, I think in our peak, we made like 9,000 square bales a year. But by the end of my career, I was down to about 4,000, 4,500. Um, so vegetables, popcorn, hay, all organic. Um, uh, the hay wasn't certified organic because there's no market for it. But uh, the other stuff was certified organic. And I did that for 28 years. Our primary markets, we sold at the uh, Norwich Farmer's Market, which is a great market, like the best in Vermont, I think. Um, we had a farm stand on the farm. And then I did a little bit of wholesale. As the years went on, I cut down more and more on the wholesale. And pretty much at the end, I was pretty much just wholesaling popcorn, um, which I was always wanting to do. Um, but I never really wanted to wholesale much anyway. That never was a goal of mine. Uh, but the vegetables were all retail from the, the farmer's market and your farm stand? Yeah, almost. At, at the end, almost everything. Occasionally, I'd have what I call my dump market where you overproduced on something. So I'd look around for someone who I could sell it to. But um, it, it was happening less and less as, as my career advanced. How did you get started farming? What made you want to get into it? <laughs> uh, I got started in West Africa. Um, I was in the Peace Corps. And uh, the 
even though I was trained to be an educator, uh, I went to school to be a teacher, uh, the Peace Corps wisely, and the three uh, branches they have of the Peace Corps, they have educational branch, they have an ag branch, and a health branch. And of course, seeing that I was an educator and being the federal government, they put me in the ag branch. Um, and they trained us on how to grow swamp rice uh, using the light, right, like the rice paddy systems you see in, in uh, Southeast Asia, except we were just doing it in swamps. And the first of crop of rice I helped a farmer grow. It was just so cool. I would just sit, I would just go down and just sit sometimes and look at the rice. <laughs> And I just thought to myself, I, I got to do this. This is, this is so neat. I, I just need to do this. And so then when I came back, it was just a matter of figuring out how to, to get going. <laughs> so you came back from the Peace Corps with a starry-eyed from watching rice. Where where'd you get started? Did you just be just go buy a farm? And No. So then, then uh, one of my fellow Peace Corps volunteers had gone to Dartmouth College and had worked with a farmer who's trained many of us, Jake Guest, you probably know his name. Yeah. Uh, Kildare Farm was his farm. And um, he had worked for Jake for several years. And he said, Jake and I get along really well. If you tell Jake, you know me, you'll have a job. And so I called up Jake and said, I'd like to learn about farming. And I said, I know Mark Kamen. And I had a job. <laughs> <laughs> a little name drop. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I uh, Jake was... Uh, very knowledgeable, knows a ton of stuff. And so um, I were, ended up working with Jake for uh, roughly two years. Um, and then I ventured out on my own. When you got started farming, did you jump in with, uh, you know, a dozen acres or, or did you get started in a backyard or? No, <laughs> I did not jump in with a dozen acres. So one of the things that when I I took these really careful notes as I was, working with Jake and talking to other farmers and doing things. And one of my notes was, uh, I kept emphasizing over and over in this little notebook, is do not jump in whole hog your first year. Because you have to get debt then to pay for everything. And so you have to buy a tractor on debt and do this on debt and do everything on debt. And you never seem to come up above surface. And so uh, I started very slowly. Um, I started at, I think my first year I was at one acre. I was pretty much a stay-home dad for my uh, two kids. And slowly expanded. Um, up until then, I started hiring employees and then reached the stage where I was at when I sold the farm. So it, it, was, a, it was a gradual process. But I would say I was five or six years in bef uh, before I made any money because every dime I made... I poured right back into the farm. But year five, I made a really good profit. And I made <laughs> profits every year after that. But the first four years, I didn't make any money. Just capital investment. Just I just invested everything I made. Yeah. Um, and I had no debt except for the, the mortgage on the land itself. I had no debt. And when I needed to buy a tractor, I just went out and paid for cash or a truck. It's, it's, I'd be saving money for it and knew what was coming. When you, when you got started, did you... Uh, just kind of grow as much as you could and as much as the market asked for? Or did you come up with a business plan and, and was strategic about where you wanted to take the farm? Uh, I was strategic. I, don't, I, don't, I never had a written business plan because it was just me. It, my business plan was in my head, but it was definitely there. 
Uh, no, I was very strategic because one of the things I had seen uh, is people overproduce, and they still over, I see it all the time. They overproduce, and then uh, you can't make any money on it if you overproduce. So I, I had said I'm not going to overproduce. I think the the one thing uh, I'm not uh, I would never claim that I'm the world's greatest grower, and I know how to grow things better than other people. But I'm a pretty good business person, and I knew how to make money. And so I, I rarely overproduced. There'd be an occasional time where you'd have too many beats because they did really well and <laughs> came in better than you thought. Um, so always that always happens. But um, I, I definitely was not of the mindset, I'm just going to plan it and see if I can sell it. That never happened with me. That, that was not never a strategy of mine. Uh, what did you envision the farm would be when you got started? Wow. That's an interesting question, uh, Andrew. I've, uh, um, hmm. You know, it's like 30-some years ago. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what it... I, I, I guess I envisioned what it turned out to be, I, I think. I, though I think a lot of us... Um, I, th- I think the one thing, it wasn't what I... Now that I think about it, it's it's... I think I envisioned that we were going to have apple trees and we we're going to have pigs and we we're going to have a couple of cows and we we're going to do all that stuff. Yeah, I didn't do any of that stuff. I just concentrated in on the veg. <laughs> <laughs> I tried some beefers for a while and it wasn't me. And so I got rid of them, but I never did do like a, a few of this and a few of that. Um, it, it, cause it, 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 I quickly realized there's no money in it. And if there's no money in it, I'm not going to do it. Because I, I, I don't want to do it because I'm already exhausted at the end of the day. Right. Um, it's one more thing. And my, my thing was always, once I have something down, I'll tackle something else. So once I felt like, oh, I, I got this dialed in. I know what I'm doing in this area. Now I'll start making hay because I always like to make hay. Uh, now I'm going to start growing popcorn because I thought that's a pretty cool thing to do. So uh, so as as... As I dialed one thing in, I would take something else on. But I never took it all on at once because I felt like I would get overwhelmed and and uh, swamped. Yeah, no, that's that's wise advice. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it, it was for me. It worked, yeah. <laughs> Do you think, um, you said there was no money in, in animals. No, I didn't. I did, it was no money for me because of the scale I was at. Right. The way you wanted to raise them, it wouldn't have worked. Because I wasn't going to be able to put 50 or 60 head on my land. Right. But I, I'm not saying there's no money in right. it. It just wasn't no money at my scale. Correct. Yeah. That's what I thought. So you you learned most of your farming experience from Jake over a couple of year period then? I, you know, I th- I learned a lot from Jake. Um, but I would say that uh, I learned more from just the School of Hard Knocks and um, going to things like the NOFA conference and talking to other farmers and going to the twilight meetings and, and doing things like that. Um, it's, it's really interesting. The first bunch of years, I would go to everything I could because the learning curve was so steep and you would learn so much. And the last bunch of years, you don't go to much anymore because it's like, yeah, I go there and I learn a couple of things, but not too much. It wasn't worth my time type of thing. I still wanted to do a few things a year to make sure that I wasn't missing out because there's I don't have all the answers. Um, but it, it, Jake was certainly um, 
very uh, informative to me and was definitely someone who I'd call my mentor. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think ultimately, when you get on your own land, you have to learn your land. And that's when the education starts again. But, so it was, it was mostly self-taught. You didn't, or, or you know, peer-to-peer sort of event. Yeah, learning. I don't know if I'd say mostly. I, I, I don't know what the percentage would be. Um, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of it, yeah. It's peer-to-peer, I think, is not self-taught, uh, but a lot of peer-to-peer. Uh, I mean, I learned a ton. Of, and that's what made the Vermont um, farming community so special is they were so willing to share. People are, they learn something and they present it and they share it. Um, and that was so helpful. So uh, I'm, uh, when I was getting into popcorn, it was, it's very hard to find out information about popcorn. Nobody knows anything about it in Vermont. And the only people who know about it are in the Midwest. And they all have big contracts with like Orville Redenbacher and things. And you can't talk to them. They will not share information. You go look at the extension agencies. They have very little information on popcorn. They don't know much, the extension people either, because they don't, the, the big growers don't share information. And I ran into this, I somehow tracked this guy named Bacchus down in South Dakota. And he said he would teach me everything I wanted to know. I had one caveat, which is I had to share it with everybody who asked. <laughs> because no one would teach him. And he learned it all. And, and then once he learned it all on his own, he said, you just have to share it. And so uh, I, I have always shared my popcorn, um, the stuff I've learned. Um, but I, I think it was really neat that so many of the farmers around here taught me so much. Uh, the, and it's the older generation, the, the guys like Jake and, and Pooh Sprague and, and uh, people who are starting to age out of the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they've definitely been a huge mentor. Like you said, it's a, it's a whole group of people that really helped a whole generation farm in the Northeast. And, and that's part of my motivation for the podcast is to capture some of those farm stories and some of that advice yeah. and, and share it with the next generation yes. of growers. Yep. And I, I think it's awesome. Yep. Cause they, the, the new generation needs the experience of the old generation to take off and run and we want them to be successful. So uh, do you have a college background at all, or no? Yeah, I went to I went to uh, Miami University, which is in Oxford, Ohio. The University of Miami is in Florida, um, so <laughs> I went there, and I I uh, was thought I was going to be a, a a school teacher and a coach, and I did a little school teaching along the way before I bought the farm. But it was always once I left West Africa, I was going to farm, and the school teaching was just a way to make some money so I could get to farming. Interesting. When you went to college, you didn't you didn't have a, a farming in mind. No, no, that was just a an opportunity that that I <laughs> ended up in West Africa and ended up in agriculture and ended up like, doing huh, that. And then I, I like this. And then I fell in love. <laughs> yeah, no, it was not not in my not even in my vision. I had uh, uh, my parents are the first generation off the farm. I have some uncles and aunts who farmed, so I was around farms, but it, it never occurred to me that this is that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, what kind of farms did your extended family do? Uh, hogs, grain, uh, dairy. Yeah, a um, mix. What did you find most fulfilling in your career in farming? I think it's a tough question to answer because when you say the word most, there's, there's a lot of mosts <laughs> that come to mind. You know, the end of the day, 
sitting up on the um, bank overlooking my farm, eating on the picnic table and looking out over the farm and seeing that, that just the clean sweep of like mowed fields or corn growing or vegetables. Um, that was <laughs> pretty satisfying, especially from up there. Because I couldn't see all the little faults that were going on <laughs> down down below. Uh, feedback from the customers, mm-hmm. just interacting with them, and and how grateful they were, and how um, uh, happy they were to support us um, was definitely pretty cool. So I, I think the the other thing is, it seems kind of weird, but it, it encapsulates into a moment is that. That cold beer after putting up nine hundred bales of hay, um, it's that's a pretty good beer, <laughs> <laughs> and and I I I, I miss that beer because um, I no longer put up nine hundred bales a day in a hay a hay in a day. Yeah, that's a lot of hay. Yep. Well, I know this, but we haven't we haven't shared it on the podcast yet. You're no longer farming. Um, could you explain a little bit on your decision to exit farming? It's actually a, a lot to explain there. So if if 12 years ago you could have come up to me and offered me $2 million for my farm, and the answer would have been no. My wife would have sold. But, <laughs> but me, no way. Um, it's just, it was, I built this up. It was a run-down place. I, built, I fixed up the house. I fixed up the barn. I got the fields productive. There's no way in hell I was going to sell this. And about... Three years ago, it suddenly struck me that a combination of things happened. And it suddenly struck me that I'm, I'm out for a hike with my wife one day and it's in, in late May. And it's like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And, it, and I realized like the last five years before the farm season started, I would kind of go into it. I wouldn't call it a, uh, out and out depression, but I was I would be like, depressed um not like where you can't get out of bed depressed but just just not happy and and it was be always at the start of the farm season and then i started realizing i'm actually not looking forward to the start of the farm season and as the farm season would get going i'd forget all about it because you get so wrapped up in it it just it go away and i thought ah as yeah, it was because the weather was bad that year or because you know, my dad died or whatever might have happened also. I, I just kind of related it to that. Um, and and then I had a, a, a uh, it, I realized that as I would get an employee who I really liked and um, work with them and I could really work with them, I would say, hey, do you, you know, I'm looking for a partner. I'm looking for someone who wants to buy me out. That was always my, my exit plan is to find somebody train them, ice fade into the sunset, they take over. And as, for one reason or another, it it never worked out. And as they would leave the farm, I would be like, bummed out. I'm like, why am I so bummed out? You know, that they they left. And then the other thing was, is is always, I was always buying houses in the winter, um, uh, fixer-uppers, the ones that you can't even live in. It took me usually two years to finish one. And I would, fix up the house, and then sell it when I got it done. Um, 
I always was like bummed out to leave the house and go out to the farm. <laughs> it's like I got to wrap up the work here in the house because I got to be farming now. And I'd be always like, oh, I really like working on the house. And it was like, why am I doing what I don't want to do anymore? Mm. And so I, I used to love it, but I don't think I love it as much as I used to. I, I've never hated it. I never got to the point where I was like dreading going out there. Um, but I think I would have gotten to that point. So I, I talked to my wife and it was like, I thought about it and it's like, I got to get out. All the signs point to get out and I, and I, I don't have to do this. So I'm going to get out. Why do you think the excitement fizzled? I, I think it fizzled. Well, for it's, 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 it's very tough to, to answer these kind of questions. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I would say the same thing when I, I used to, so I taught school for a few years in between when I got out of the Peace Corps in West Africa where I fell in love with farming. Um, I, I always liked teaching school, never hated teaching school. Um, but there was something I wanted to do more than teach school, and that was to farm. And so I think the short answer is there was something I wanted to do more um, then farm was work on these old houses. And I think the other part was, is um, 60, I was 60 years old and I'm completely tied down. I hadn't, I used to love backpacking. I hadn't backpacked for, since I got the farm. You know, never, never did it. No time. You know, all this beautiful weather we have in New England, the best time of year is the summer. I can't go anywhere. I have to be, you know, within reach of the farm. Um, I can't do the hikes I want. I can't travel the way I want. I can't do all these things. And so I was like a, a prisoner of the farm. And the question I asked myself, is there something I would rather do that I can't do because I'm farming? And the answer was unequivocally, yes, there is something I'd rather do. And so as soon as that came up to yes, it's like, I'm getting out. Right. I'm getting out. Even though I still like it, I'm getting out because it's, there's other things I want to do and I'm 60 years old. And if I do those other things until I'm 80, well, then guess what? I can't climb Kilimanjaro. <laughs> you know, I can't um, hike the, the long trail. I can't do those things anymore because I can no longer farm. So hence, I can't hike anymore either. <laughs> right, right. And I, I want to do those things while I still can. Life's short. That's a I, I valid reason. <laughs> I can farm myself to death or I can get out while I'm still a young man and do other things. Yeah. So I decided to leave. <laughs> no, that's great that you had the realization that there's other things that you want to do and you should do it while you can. And in a way, you did farming. You got to do what you wanted to do with it. You built it up into what you wanted it to be and you're ready for something different. Yeah, and it, it, it helped that when... Um, when we sold it, uh, we had a lot of young families who were interested. My um, kids were not interested in farming, so that wasn't going to be an option to sell to them. And I didn't, we could have stayed there and let the farm disappear and then rented the land, but that, that wasn't an option to me. I, I didn't, I didn't. So we had to go. Um, and I, I loved the place, but we had to go because I wanted to, to to see it stay a farm. 
And the, the hardest thing to give up when you stop farming um, is farming is probably like being a police officer or a fireman uh, or a soldier. Um, not many other jobs where you are a farmer. I mean, you're because you think, sleep, eat farming. You're, that's all you do, especially during the season. You, your mind never leaves it for very long. You, you can't leave it for very long. Um, you're always there. It's, it's all consuming, and it will all consume you. And people get so wrapped up in their identity as a farmer, they don't realize they're not happy farming anymore. I can, I can point out a bunch of people <laughs> who are farming and are miserable. I mean, they hate it. But they, don't, they can't redefine themselves. They don't know how to redefine themselves. They're a farmer. That maybe the uh, it's it's a funny thing in Vermont when you look at um, professions in town, and e- even though farming is not a high paid profession, it's a highly valued profession in Vermont. So if you're a farmer in a Vermont town, you're kind of a rock star. And I was giving up that rock star status, yeah. and that was hard to do actually. That I struggle with that, and still have a little bit of a struggle with that. Because up until recently, people would say, what do you do for a living? If I'm meeting somebody new, I'd say, I used to farm, but now I'm doing this. And I thought, wow. When is that not your identity? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I better stop that because I got... <laughs> but they knew you as the farmer in town. Well, I'm talking about people who just meet me for the uh-huh. first time. I'm right. still... Because I, I, want, I want that rock star status <laughs> that I used to have. Um, so it's... it's um, and I think a lot of farmers just don't, they put their head down. As somebody said, um, farmers are, uh, are very good at uh, taking care of their farm, but not as good about taking care of themselves. So I think a lot of times they just put their head down and they get the work done and they don't come up for air enough to know that is this, this is, you only got one shot at life. And is that what you want to do your whole life? And it, he, he, it almost sounds like I'm making an ad for please don't ever farm. That's not the case. I, I loved what I did for 26 years and can't imagine another lifestyle. Um, but, you know, that was enough. That, that's a good run. I mean, that's that's a lot of time. It's not like you just dabbled in it for three, five years. I mean, you spent a career length mastering the craft. Yeah, I don't know if I ever mastered it. <laughs> I don't think I'd, you ever I'd say you it. sold a you sold a business that was profitable thirty years later. I'd say that's a certain level of mastery. Yeah, I guess you, you certainly look at it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. Did your uh, wife or kids have any uh, significant impact on the decision for a career change? No. No, my wife was never uh, part of the farm in the in the sense of. Um, going out and working, you know, occasionally I'd run decisions off her, but, uh, she, she made it clear when we started that this was my gig, not hers, which I think was also very helpful in terms of profitability because I had somebody working off farm, um, making, uh, healthcare happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's just huge. Um, and, and the kids, I never consulted them. I never, until I said, um, selling the farm, 
Because I thought it would just be confusing if they said, oh, it'd be a shame we grew up in that house and, you know, we really like it and don't sell the house. And I didn't want that conflicted thing. Uh, they weren't going to farm. It was more important to sell the farm than to keep living in the house. And I didn't want that conflict. So I didn't tell them till, till I said, we got, got in the market and we're going to sell it. Hmm. Did they grow up on the farm? Yeah. Yeah, they both grew up there. That's the only place they ever lived. There's a lot of young farmers now who are expanding their family or thinking about uh, having kids. What was your experience like having kids on the farm? Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Except for the fact that I couldn't travel with them during the farm season as much as I'd like to. I couldn't, you know, we couldn't go on those big family trips out west or anything like that. Um which is, you know, a real sacrifice, actually. But, you know, just the, the freedom of having them grow up on the farm. And, um, it, it's, you know, only 2% of Americans farm. Right. So only 2% of American kids are growing up on a farm. And they got to be part of that 2%. So I think it was pretty special to have them grow up on a farm. Rock star status. <laughs> there you go. You're right. So not many people get to do that. Uh, tell me about a time when you felt really successful farming. I I think it probably probably after that fifth year when I had invested in everything, I had paid for the tractor, I'd paid for the greenhouses, I paid for everything cash, and that first year I was like I actually had to write Uncle Sam a check at the end of the year for income earned. Um, I think that was the first like, hey. Uh, this is successful and it's and it, it's it might be a different viewpoint than other farms because i think a lot of other farms don't judge success based on profit but um sustainability begins you know because everybody wants to be sustainable sustainability begins with the letter p for profit if you can't make money you're not sustainable i don't care how noble you are i don't care what goals you ha- have i don't care how much food you give away if you can't make money and your farm goes under, you're not sustainable. Your model doesn't work. And so you need a model that works. And so to me, that was based on, can I make money? Um, and I think that's the year I said, yeah, I can make money. And I made money every year after that. I never didn't. Actually, even in Irene, when we got flooded out um, on August 29th, we still made money that year. Not much. <laughs> we were fairly profitable that year. Uh, didn't make much money, but um, no, nobility is no. There's no nobility in not um, in starving, and and not having um, money to meet your basic needs in life. There's no nobility in that. And and I don't think if 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 you're a farmer and you're barely getting by and working your tail off and just can't get above ground and just you're stressed about money all the time. It's, it's not worth it. Life's too short. Don't do this to yourself. Find something else to do. Um, you'll be happy doing something else. You just need to identify what it is and go there. Um, because you, if you make money, it's, it's even better. <laughs> and we always sold stuff. Uh, if you can ask the, my competitors at the Norwich Farmer's Market. We sold stuff for lower than anybody else ever did. I always had the lowest prices. Because that was, so you don't have to gouge people to make money. Um, like I said, I think the, the one skill I have is I'm good at with money. 
were you intentionally undercutting or you knew your, you knew what was profitable? And oh, I know so my profit margins. Yep. I know how much it cost me to grow stuff. People don't know. You can, you can walk around the state and ask people how much does it grow you to, to cost you to grow a pound of tomatoes. They don't know. I knew. <laughs> I knew how much. Not, not to the penny, but I, had, I, I could just sit there and do the math. And it's like, I know how much it cost me to grow it. So um, I, I know that I can sell a pound of tomatoes for, you know, $2.75 and still make 50 cents a pound, you know. And that pays for my employees, that pays for me, that pays for an hourly rate for me, and that 50 cents a pound is just literally my profit on top. Um, and I knew that. And so how can you compete with someone who knows what their, where their margins are? And so if, if somebody else in the market starts growing, st- starts selling uh, uh, tomatoes for two seventy five. I can go down to 250. I'm still making a quarter pound. Because <laughs> right? you knew that. <laughs> I knew that. I can go, I can go lower. I'm, I'm good. Because yeah, I still want people to come to me first. And um, so I, I had that ability to do that. Where did you learn the, the business sense? Mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple of times that that was a strength of yours. Yeah. Because I'm a cheap person. <laughs> you wanted it to work. <laughs> Uh, I think um, I think probably kind of watching my dad and mom. Really, uh, they grew up with nothing, and um, he—I mean, they—they they literally had nothing. And in the end, they weren't rich, but they—they they were comfortable. Um, and and as kids, we we did without. And uh, the first time I went to a sit-down restaurant, I was a I was a senior in high school. It's so the first time I went to a restaurant where someone came and took my order. <laughs> I've nev- never been to one before. So uh, so I just think watching how they manage their money, I think. Very carefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I had, uh, you know, I read a couple of books on, you know, how to run a small business type of thing. But And I think some people are just born with innate abilities in certain areas. Um pay attention to certain things yeah 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 uh if you could tell me about a time when you felt really challenged by farming i think it was more towards the end of my career um and i think that was another sign there was a bunch of signs that came in to tell me but especially in the vegetable world there's there's more diseases coming in there's more pests coming in there's more new stuff to learn. And I, I think I was always interested in that when I was younger. But I said, I got older, I think I just wanted to coast. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think I wanted that anymore. And so some of this stuff would really impact me hard. Like um, I always did really well with potatoes. Didn't have much trouble growing them. They sell really well at the market. I'd have like, six different varieties we at the at any given norwich farmers market in the fall we could sell four or five hundred pounds of potatoes right so uh my last year growing the potato bugs com- completely wiped us out they they had grown uh totally resistant to the spinosad i was using uh i couldn't get the um the bacteria the uh m uh, used to be called M1 way back in the old days, but there's um, uh, I've, uh, 
Trident, I think they were calling it at the end. They they had pulled it off the shelf because there was some kind of uh, issue with it. And so I had, it, and it was too late. And I was, by the time I realized Spinoza literally wasn't working for me, I'd never, they, they munched those potatoes right down to nothing. And it was a complete and utter failure. And, and I felt really bad at that year because I had no potatoes at the market. Zero. And I had potato bugs like you'd never seen before. I mean, they were by the gazillions out there. Um, yeah, that was, that was I, I, I think that helped to show me that, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought this I, fun anymore. I thought I had this dialed in, and here I am 26 years in, and this is the worst year I've ever had for potatoes, bar none, by far. And, and, and it's like, wow. So I'm getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> I'm not getting better at this. I'm getting worse at this. You know, and the weather's more challenging. Um, that and, and there's no farmer out there is going to tell you it's not more challenging. Every even the guys who vote for Trump are going to tell you the weather's more challenging. <laughs> um, it's 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 it's. I just didn't want those challenges anymore. So I think yeah, I think the last years all that stuff kind of piled up. And as I'd get a new insect coming to visit me, I'd be like, really? You know, I love growing broccoli, and now Swede Midge is visiting me, and I can't, can't really grow much broccoli through the season. It's very hard. And, you know, something I always, my customers could always depend on me to have was now inconsistent. So. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it sounds like you think that um, farming was getting significantly harder 30 years later than when you started. Is that true uh yeah yeah i do think that's true yeah i i i I, the the folks that bought the farm i kind of almost feel a little guilty it's like uh it's like really guys you're gonna get into farming now and it's all these challenges are coming up but i I, that's probably just the old man in me coming out um (laughs) Because really, probably what they're looking at it is they, they love the challenge. That's that's why they're doing it. And so I probably would have been exactly the same as them. Right. This is their beginning. This is their beginning. This is all new for them. It's all fresh. They're up for the challenge. They can handle this. They want to do this. I would have been the same way, I think. Um, but after 26 years, it's like, no, I just want to coast it out. And I can't coast it out. So <laughs> I'll just move on to something else that I that I enjoy doing. You mentioned the Irene flood and that was a almost zeroed out your season. Was there anything you could do to recover or get anything back after that? No, that was like August 29th or something like that. That happened. No, and you can't I, I forget all the the time periods now, but I think you can't replant anything for 60 days or something like that. It's 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 some time to figure, but what whatever the time figure is, we didn't have enough time. Yeah, it, we literally couldn't like replant lettuce or do anything. So my season was, it I was done. We we tilled everything in, put cover crops on, cleaned up the land, and then I just started uh, picking up jobs wherever I could find them. Did that did that flood all of your fields, or did you have a little bit that was we own. We own. We had thirty-five acres on a farm. I mean, 30, thirty-seven acres on a farm. Thirty-five were underwater. <laughs> the house and barn were fine. They're high and dry. 
The old timers put it up high and dry, but everything else was underwater. I lost everything. Every, every crop I had was gone. So, at least the house was high. <laughs> and I had the house, which was a, a big savior over my neighbors who didn't even have. Right. They had houses who were wrecks. So you know, I just lost my vegetables. They lost their house. So I felt, you know, in in perspective, I'm doing okay. Right. Could have been way worse. Way worse. <laughs> If you were just starting out now, uh, what advice would you give to a beginning farmer? I think some of it I've already given. Um, go slow. It's okay to have a part-time job till you work your way out of the part-time job. It's If you and your partner both want to farm, it's okay for one of you to work off the farm till you're ready for both of you to work on the farm. You don't have to have it all at once. It, it, maybe it'll take you... Four years to get there, three years to get there, um, but you're much better starting off as a profitable operation. Um, uh, don't overgrow. <laughs> uh, make sure you have you pretty sure what your markets are before you plant the seed. Um, if you don't don't plant and hope, that's not a good strategy. Um, uh, know when to buy stuff. Because uh, you would get, um, it, it was so easy to get seduced by equipment. You know, you, you go to the to, to the uh, the shows and you see that um, that Littleston cultivator, and you go, "Oh my God, the things I could do with that! Oh, it'd be fantastic to have one of those." And I really always thought that. Um, but the price of it at my scale, it, there's no payback on that. It, it really doesn't make any sense to buy a, I don't even know what they go for now, a twelve dollars or $14,000, $15,000 cultivator. At my scale, it didn't make any sense. I could pick up a whole lot of smaller cultivators for next to nothing, you know, 1000 bucks, $500 that actually did the same thing, <laughs> just not quite as well. Um, and so don't get seduced by that stuff. And I've also seen other farmers do the opposite where they don't invest. And they're doing everything by hand. It's like, are you kidding me? You're, 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 you're picking off um, uh, potato bugs by hand. <laughs> spray. Get a backpack sprayer. Spray. You, there's organic stuff you can spray. Do it. <laughs> you can't make any money if you're you're going to pick them off by hand. It makes no sense. Um, yeah, that that kind of stuff. I, I think you can make money wholesale. I think you make money. Direct marketing, I think there's a lot of ways to make money, but um, you can't make any money if you overproduce. You can't make any money if you um, if you shoot too high your first years. You know, you can't make any money if you don't have the right equipment. Is all that advice the same advice you would have told yourself getting started? Like, are those lessons you learned along the way? Uh, no, I, I think I knew that going yeah. in. That's that's the stuff when I was working my way up, um, working with Jake and observing other farms, going to twilight meetings, watching what they were doing, watching what talking to other farms. Uh, I realized I, I, my little notebooks full of like where people were screwing up more than where people were succeeding. It's like don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. I saw that. Don't do that. Um, like, uh, you know, Jake's a brilliant grower, and I don't know anybody who knows more about growing than Jake does. 
but my notebook's kind of full of like, oh, saw this on the farm today. Make sure I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't so much about growing. It was more of the business sides of things. Yeah. That's because I, I think just intuitively that's how, that's how you make money. Uh, here's a here's an interesting take. If you could restart now, knowing what you know now, what do you think you might do differently? Certainly going to farm again. No no doubt about it. I've, I would definitely lock up 26 years farming again. Um, I, uh, I would be the popcorn king. That's, I, I wouldn't bother with anything else. Just popcorn. I love growing that stuff. It's a great product. Uh, if you get the right varieties, easy to market. Um, uh, it's, yeah. I, I, the problem is you need a rotation. So I wouldn't be just the popcorn guy. I'd probably have to have soybeans in there and um, maybe some wheat in there. So make a, like, go on a three-year rotation. But I think I'd be on that. And, and I'd be, I think that's where I would have gone. The, um, the popcorn king. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would definitely be into soybeans and and wheat as well, but that uh, those being the lesser of the crops, if I can break even on them while I'm waiting for the popcorn to make me my money. Why do you think you'd also do those aside from rotation? Just rotation. <laughs> <laughs> if I could do popcorn every year in the just same as spot, a cover crop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would do it. Uh, but yeah, just as a cover crop. Yeah. The beans are pretty important, like a soybean, because it can put in the nitrogen the year before you plant the um, corn. So would you harvest those or just... Oh, no, I would definitely harvest them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I never did it, but I was getting... I'd read a lot about it and thought, this is my next stage if I go there, and realized when I got to that stage, I was like 55, and it's like, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to invest in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment because that's what it would cost at at my age. I'm not going to do it. That's then then I know I'm forcing myself to farm till I'm 75. Yeah, you're committing yourself so at that point. Yep. Now I, I don't want to do that. I, I so um but if I was younger, I would definitely have gone there. What made you get into popcorn to begin with? <laughs> uh you know, I was at the my first year in the Norwich Farmers Market. Uh, I asked the market manager. I said, "What, what, what are people not growing here that you think might sell that people ask about?" And he said, "Popcorn." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Why not?" So then I just dabbled in it, and I just grew small plots of popcorn, and I'd hand harvest, hand shell, hand everything, and and that got to, um, I kind of honed in on a couple varieties that are better tasting um, than other varieties. And and then I, I ended up with a surplus every year. I'd have too much popcorn for me to eat. And so uh, at, at the start of the, the first start of the um, market season, I'd bring in, you know, my 80 pounds of surplus popcorn. And uh, people would buy it. And then the next year, people like would come and they would buy like 15 pounds of it, <laughs> not a pound. Because they knew this was the only shot they had at the app, the only bite they had. So they would buy as much as they could. And then I'm like, ooh. And I'd be like sold out the first day of like my 80 pounds. It's like, oh, I can do something with this. So then it was then it was like, then I started ramping up to an acre. Um, 
and got more mechanized. Two, then three. I think I was five acres when I stopped. So wow. that's like 15,000 pounds. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a lot of popcorn. Yeah. yeah. Th- think about four. I always think about this like the, the 40 times expansion rate. So think about how much popcorn that would equate to. If it was popped. <laughs> yeah, if it was popped. <laughs> <laughs> a lot harder to store it when it's popped. Because yeah. <laughs> I dabbled with popcorn this year. We grew, you know, a, about a quarter acre, got three gator loads, ended up being about a, a 55 gallon drum full. Um, so we're about ready to, to bring that to market this year. We have a little farm store. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the customers, but I just made a quick, a quick post on social media and I already had three people like, let me know when that's available. They, they want it. So that's exciting. Yeah. We, and, and it's a lot of fun um, yeah. to grow it. And so I'm looking, looking forward to figuring yeah, yeah. it out. Yeah. No, it's a great crop. I, I would encourage you to, to stay at it. Um, and it's, and it was pretty cool. Cause I'd go down to the barn and this, this time of year, well, not so much. I wouldn't have everything dried off, but by like uh, March, everything would be dried off. And then um, I put it into um, big barrels and each barrel would hold about 800 pounds. And so I'd go down there and there'd be, Thirty thousand dollars worth of popcorn just sitting in my barn, <laughs> in barrels, and and you know it's ultimately if I was going to go ramp up, I wouldn't use barrels. You're gonna you're gonna need grain bins and mm. augers and all that kind of stuff. That was the next step. Um, again, I decided not to go there, um, but I did the research and thought about it hard. Um, but it's it's a great product, and it sits there for. The longest I stored some is I just stuck some on a bag in my shelf in my office for years. And every year I'd pull it out and pop it. And every year it had 100% pop and uh, tasted great. So five years, 100% pop, tasted great. It's like, that's that's a good product to grow. <laughs> it doesn't go bad. Right, right. I'm like lettuce. <laughs> lettuce doesn't quite have a five-year shelf life. <laughs> Uh, were you checking moisture on that or just pop testing? Uh, critical, yeah. critical. If you're going to get serious, uh, get a moisture tester. Do not, do not do a pop test. And the reason why is uh, it, uh, popcorn will do a great, great, it'll pop at about 15% moisture um, content. It'll pop great. Uh, it will mold in storage at 15%. Mm. If you don't get down below, uh, say, 14.3, 14.2, um, it's going to mold on you. So you'll sell a product that you think is good to the customer because it popped for you. But when they have it in their jar for a month and they pull it out, it's all dusty with mold. That's your fault. Um, yeah. Not theirs. And, and so the only way you can truly test it is to do a moisture test. Um, and they, they, I mean, the cheaper, the cheaper versions of those go for. They used to go for like five hundred bucks. They probably still go. They probably go for more than that now. But it's you, biggest addition you have. You have to have it. You can't not have a moisture tester. I was able to pick one up for two seventy five this fall. Should have bought it. Did you buy it? Yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, great, great. Good. Yeah, we're That's testing it. Buy. Like, so I, I did it. I dried ours. Um, we hand hand husked it all. And then Woo-hoo! we drew, yeah, yeah. <laughs> three gator loads, a couple of evenings, mom, mom and my wife helped out. And we, uh, um, we have this kind of a DIY herb dryer. It's a 
homesteader potato rack that yeah. I put sides on it, and yeah. then I used a box fan on top with a little heater fan above it. Yeah, and I can kind of set that at low, and it will blow warm air across it, and uh, that would be know, about three bulb crates worth at a time. So it, I spent a couple weeks of electricity burning that out, but I was able to test this year the moisture content, and um, I tried to the first batch I pulled out too soon and that ended up molding on me yep. so i lost probably 20 pounds that way which was a yep. bummer um but then i had some that was like got down to like nine and a half ten percent but then it's been popping phenomenally and most of it is like 10 8 almost 11 percent right now um yeah so so it's it shouldn't pop at nine <laughs> there's something wrong there because it won't pop below 12 so, interesting so you, you're um, maybe my little meter is not calibrated quite. It's right. exactly right. So what is, is it? A is it a dicky thing? Is it a? Do you remember what it is? What brand it is? Is it a little handheld one? It's a handheld one. It's got a blue screen on it. But you can get. You should get it. Calib- there, there is different settings. It'll do like seventy-five different grains. So I've just been yeah. doing its yellow popcorn setting, yeah. and maybe it would do better on a white popcorn setting. Well, it's it's what I ended up doing is is sending the, my. Um, thing to the company that built it with some of my popcorn and they calibrated it to my popcorn oh nice so um i have the agritronics mt pro plus yeah i don't know much about that oh yeah yep i i so so i I think if you're going to get serious i think that's a snapshot um Mm. what you've got the with the the, it also could be various other things because it's so I again, there's no one to ask about these things. But what I've come up with is, so if you dry popcorn, and you get it, it's I used to crib it right, the old fashioned way, right? I stick it in a corn crib, and and that would work, but it would take all winter to dry it, and and then in first thing in the spring, the popcorn's ready to shell. Right when I got tons of other work to do, <laughs> right? And I and I just don't have time for that. Especially because I my sheller was just my first sheller was a hand crank one. My second sheller was a bigger hand crank one. My third sheller was a, you had to feed it one at a time, but had a motor on it. And then I got a sheller where you could feed like uh, uh, five ears a second into it. <laughs> <laughs> Much better. <laughs> uh, I like that one a lot better. But um, if you're feeding an ear at a time, it takes a while to do all those ears because they got to handle each ear. So this is still not an effective system. But one of the things I learned about drying it, this was really interesting to me, is it would be right where you wanted it, right at 13.5. That's like the optimum, right? Because it's right in between 12 where it won't pop and 15 where it will pop but mold. So it's like 13.5. <laughs> that's that's the target range. But any 14.2 down to 12.5, good. And and you wouldn't get done, and the next day it would rain. Mm. It would immediately shoot up to 16, 17%. But almost immediately drop right back down to 13.5. So I think where if it was 16% earlier in the year, what I think what's happening is it's like surface moisture. Mm-hmm. When, it's, when you have it dried where you want it, the inside still doesn't get wet. The moisture isn't penetrating in. But on the outside, those wet days, the humid, humid days are making that moisture penetrate in. So it's reading high. But it, it's easy to dry it out because it's just surface stuff. 
That's that was my theory. But no, that makes sense. Um, it's, that's why I said it's an art. That was on the cob at that point. It's on the cob. Yeah, in in your crib. On the cob because you, it, if you take it off the cob, so if you you say you run it through a uh, corn picker, um, and it shells the corn picker shell mm-hmm. right, um, you'll break uh, it at it when it's. In, in Vermont, we're going to pick it off at, you'll be lucky to be at 21, 22% moisture content, really high. Like my moisture reader wouldn't even read it. It's too high. It's right. off the scale. And so if you if you picked it at that kind of moisture content here and sent it through a combine, which has the sheller in it, you're going to crack about 15% of your kernels. And what the big boys do out in the Midwest is they send it through optical scanners mm-hmm. and they take those out. <laughs> they're also picking at about 15% moisture content out there. Right. So they they got it's hotter year, the corn ripens quicker, it dries more in the field. We don't have those advantages. Um and and so if you don't shell, if you keep take it off the cob, you're going to have crack kernels. And if you're selling somebody popcorn and only 87% of it pops cuz it's got crack kernels, you got shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, so what you want to do is you want to keep it on the cob until it's dry. Yeah, then it shells a lot easier. Then, then your 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 loss rate from shelling is is negligible. I mean, I would say I had a ninety seven percent pop rate. Yeah, um, I I never actually measured it, but it was pretty high. You do a bowl, and there's only a couple on the bottom. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yep. There's always a few old maids out there. Right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it's 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 all about that. Um, all about the it's and and it's us also learned it's not about heat, it's about air. And and the days you're trying to pump air through. So if you're trying to pump air through your popcorn and the relative humidity is there's a Crap. A- Ashley's got this chart who I sold the farm to. You're going to want this chart. I don't think I even have it anymore. But it compares the relative humidity of the air, the temperature, and your moisture content of your popcorn. How low can you get it? So if you've got a certain day and the relative humidity is pretty high and the air is pretty cold, you can't dry below 14% no matter how much you pump air through there. Because the you're just gonna it's just gonna keep reabsorbing, mm. and so those those three things are really key. So if you got a, a day where the relative humidity is pretty low, and the temperatures even if the temperatures low, you might be able to dry it down to twelve percent that day. So if, now if you had air, you don't need heat; you just need air. How much air can you pump through that? So I got a grain drying fan, and that that was a game changer when I could. I mean, it's your typical household fans blowing, I don't know, five cubic air feet of air a second. Um, or, and, and this thing blows 150,000 cubic feet. <laughs> no, it's a minute on the five cubic yeah. feet and a minute on a f- household fan. It's 150,000 cubic feet a minute. It would take, if I turn the heater on with this system, it would take 10 degree air, warm it up to 110 degrees off, uh, up and and the 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 heater would have to turn off because you don't want to heat above 110 because it cracks kernels and just like 
10 degree air. It's heating it that fast that it has to, <laughs> that the heater has to shut off because it's, it's now too hot because the fan, that the system. There's a lot of BTUs in that A lot heater. of BTUs. Is that a propane unit? Yeah, propane. Yeah. I've, if I kept it running around the clock, it burned 300 gallons in 24 hours. <laughs> But what I learned is I didn't have to turn it on at all. Hmm. If I just picked my days. Interesting. I just watch my days and say, oh, here's a relatively low humid, humid uh, day coming up. I didn't really yep. care what the ambient temperature of the air was. I'm just looking at humidity levels in the air. And then I'd let her rip and let her run um, all day. And I could actually do it just on ambient temperature. I learned how to do it. So, But it's all about air. The more air I had... When I when I was using smaller fans, it just they just didn't have it. it you could do the same. It took you so long to do it. Mm-hmm. And and when I had that kind of air blowing through it, it was like crazy how fast it would dry. Did you have a, a way of monitoring moisture content as that was on to so you didn't overdry it, or were you pulling samples? Pulling samples. Yep. Yeah. So um, so I, I built a bin that was uh, eight feet. It was about 10 feet high, 27 feet long, 4 feet wide. And that would be entirely full of popcorn. And I put a grain drying floor on, so it's a, it's got a, it's a slatted floor, so it's, the, the kernels can't fall through the floor, but air can get pushed up through. So the air comes up from down below from the fan. And, and the other thing now you have to keep in mind is the bottom corn is going to be really dry, the top corn is going to be a little less dry, and the and I'm sorry, the middle corn is going to be a little less dry, and the top corn is going to be. Right, it's it's too dry. The middle corn is going to be at thirteen five. The top corn is going to be at fifteen five. So they're two points apart each. That's when I shut the whole system down and I close off all the air and I let it sit for two weeks Hmm. and it equalizes itself. It shares its moisture content. So when then you get back in there, the bottom stuff's 13.5, top middle's 13.5, top's 13.5. Good to go. Shall it go? Um, and, And what I used to do is like had this whole system where it would come off and then I'd have that... I'd have to keep moisture testing it as I was shelling, and then mm-hmm. I would mix it in barrels and do the same process with the shelled popcorn. It'll to it'll, try to equalize it. it. It will equalize itself, but you, you it's so much easier if you already equalized it in the bin, and then you can just go to shelling and just go let it rip. Especially if you're doing, you know, like if we had conveyor uh, taking it out of the bin, putting it through the sheller, and you're doing literally, you know, five years a second. So you got. You don't want anything to slow that process down. You're kind of cruising. Yeah, you're boogieing at that, yeah, at that it takes, rate. It takes you, you know, it takes you like three to five minutes to fill up a 400 gallon barrel. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a 400, uh, 800 pound barrel. So that's how fast it's coming down the chute. So it's kind of cool. Uh, did you did you have a way to uh, fix popcorn that was over dried, or you always had some that was 15 that you could blend with? Yeah, uh, I uh, overdrying's. You, you're never going to get that right. It, if you can blend it, it seems to work really well. If you have a everything's over dry and you try to add moisture back, 
Yeah, it's it's really tough because what ends up happening, unless you're going to be right on top of it, and so you pour a little moisture in the top, it, that moisture ends up in the bottom. you got to constantly be moving it around. Otherwise, it molds in the bottom. And so it's really, and then it, it still won't get the pop. That will never come back to it, the pop it should. Um, so I was just, I, I learned not to over dry. Just don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and under dry, you can't do that either. So, um, right. So, but under dry, at least I know when I'm testing it, it's like, okay, that's under dry. I just got to run the, I got to run it. You know, I, I thought I was going to be done today, but I'm not. I got to do it again tomorrow or whatever. Or sometimes I'd come home and the weather forecast freaking wasn't right. And you come home and it's raining. It's like, God, they said it was going to be good weather. To, and so I'm, all I'm doing is pumping moisture in at that point. So I run right out there and shut the whole system down. Yeah. So. But uh, you weren't worried about mold? Like I, I would think as soon as you get it harvested, you would want to get it dried down as soon as possible. So in the Midwest, they so any literature you get on popcorn all comes out of the Midwest. And so the Midwest is much warmer than we are in the winter. We're becoming more like the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I grew up out in Ohio, and a typical winter out in Ohio is it'll it can get wicked cold and get down to fifteen below, and then it'll snow, and then it'll warm up in the forties for a week, and then it'll go back down to twenties, and then it'll be back up in the forties, and it'll just do that all winter. Um, anytime you get above freezing. The mold clock starts, and so there's it's like a degree day thing for like on on uh, insects or diseases needs so many degree days to to do it. Molds the same way; it needs so many degree days. So we tend to um, drop below freezing and tend to stay there for most of the winter. We have a couple of days here and there it pops up above. And so the first bunch of years, I was terribly worried about mold because I had so much popcorn that I'd pick it in the hopper wagons and I'd have um, a whole hopper wagon full of corn. It'd be, have, you know, 12, uh, 2,500, 3,000 pounds of popcorn sitting in this hopper wagon. And that I, had, I couldn't get into my drying system because my drying system was too small mm-hmm. um, to handle that. So I just, it's in storage in my wagon. And it... First, I was really worried about it molding. Um, so I bought these the screw fans. That they have long screw things on them that you can screw them in, and it, it'll suck air out. I thought, I'll just keep some air movement in, and that'll keep it from molding. Well, I've eventually learned I don't need to do anything. It's too cold. Hmm. It's not going to mold in Vermont. It's not going to mold until you get back into sort of the March season. And then, and now your clock's ticking again because now you're into March and April. It's not cold anymore. It's going to start molding if you haven't reached the right moisture content. So now, now you need to really get your active gear because time's of the essence. So that was husked in a wagon. Yeah, it's and it's only partially husked because the I got a, I had a corn picker. Um, it's uh, that the corn picker is designed. It was. Um, to do uh, dent corn, which is a fatter ear. Mm-hmm. It's not designed to do popcorn. So when it goes through the husking bed, where it, the, where it pulls the husk off, it's probably only 80% effective 
on getting those off. So what's another, another lesson learned is like the first year, it's like, oh my God, look at all these ears. They didn't husk. Oh, this is not, this is terrible. And so I remember husking some and I thought, well, and, and then the next year I was like, I, I, I'm just going to see how this does. Made no damn difference. <laughs> it didn't matter that I had 20% unhusked. Hmm. The, the cleaners, the, the, it, they dried just fine. And I think if the whole bin would have been unhusked, that might have been an issue. But with just 20% being unhusked, not even an issue. And then the, the sheller, uh, a lot of it blows out of the sheller, and then the cleaners take out the rest. So oh, okay, no right. So, yeah, those partial husks were still in the crib, in your drying, went right through everything. Well, they went, they, the, the, the latter version of the, the, husk, the uh, sheller I was using has a fan in it. And so that would blow a lot of it out. But some of the husks would go through. But you weren't hand husking the rest to clean no, them up. stop. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you're looking at, at, we could do the math, but there is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years of corn. <laughs> I, I can't hand husk that. It's, it's got to be automated. There's no way you can do this if it's not automated. You just can't. It's just too, it's overwhelming. Um, and you, you're not going to make any money. Because mm. you, you spend all day out there husking and you'll as much as your wife loves you now Andrew <laughs> she's not going to love you if you keep making her husk corn every year yeah no exactly <laughs> we're, we're at capacity <laughs> your love's at capacity probably your time's at capacity <laughs> yeah yeah we're, we're max yeah max, max can't do any more uh with the existing equipment yeah um, yeah great for feasibility you know, and hand pick it a couple evenings here or there with the yeah. dog on the side by side, and it's fine. Yeah, but that's not a, a commercial viable, no, sustainable. If you, <laughs> right. If you want to go to the next level, you're you're just going to have to go to equipment because yeah, well, it's you can't. You're at you're probably maxed out at what you're doing right. by hand. Right. Um, and 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 I figured the level of equipment I had, I could go up to. What did I figure it was like? like 12 acres if I wanted to get that big. And then I was going to outgrow my equipment. My mm -hmm. equipment was just going to be too small to, to keep up with that. And, and then it had to go to a whole nother level of equipment. And you could pick up all this stuff out in the Midwest, especially because they're, they're selling these combines that for us are gigantic. For them, they're just little tiny pieces of crap. They, they're, they, if they can get five grand for one of these, they're psyched. They're <laughs> stoked. Something that they, they, they bought for, you know, $150,000 they'll get five grand for and get it out the door because the combine they're running on is costs a million dollars right right and he does 26 rows at a time this thing only does 10 <laughs> <laughs> you know and so they're there you can get the stuff it's out there it'll do it did you have a combine or I had a corn picker okay um the combine would have been the next step. Yeah, above. and then then I would have needed optical scanners and the whole mm. nine yards. And, and <laughs> what, what if you scan it out and you take it out? That's okay because you just sell it for grain, right? You just shell it. I mean, they crack it and then sell it for grain. So it has it, it's a byproduct. You know, it's not what you wanted, but you can get rid of it. Um, but they also sell two row corn pickers. I think there's um, I don't think they make them anymore. But Deer made one up until the 1980s. Um, and so I know they're still out there. You can get those kind of things. If you were to get back into it, like you said, to become the, the popcorn king. I'm not going to get king. back into no, it. No, I said I'm, if. I'm enjoying my new life. If you were. <laughs> um, to be that popcorn king, would you would you pursue the 
the combine or would you start with a corn picker? No, I think I'd stay with, with the corn picker because yeah. I think the moisture content's just too high here. Right. I think I was in the Midwest. I'd, I'd go right to a combine. Um, but it, when it's, we're going to 15% moisture content in the field. Uh, but here, I don't think I, like I said, my reader only goes to like 22 or something or 21 and it, I couldn't even register it. Yes. Same. I, I tried to hand shell some to test it and I barely could do it. And then right. it maxed it out. And I think mine maxed out 26 or something. And so. You know, when you get a lot of, I'm glad you said that about the hand shell is, is at the end, I was good enough that I could, I, I'd still put it through my tester, but I could just grab the ear and flick kernels <laughs> off and say, that's ready to go. Yeah. And be pretty damn close. I was I was kind of testing myself <clears throat> with that, yeah. Either hand shelling it with my thumb, or I got one of those, yep, a metal yep. things, which is slick. That's yep. actually real fast. Um, yep. Or chewing on a kernel, and I could tell. Uh, I'm like, okay, so this kernel was at 19. percent This kernel was at 10. percent You know, what's it feel like when you bite into it? I never thought about that one. And you could definitely get a uh, get a feel for it. Should like crack, but not shatter. And if it's chewy, then it's way too soft. Like it was definitely noticeable, yeah. which was interesting. Yeah, that hand, the hand, the twisty thing. Yeah, is I, I definitely cast have, aluminum. Yep, you need one of those anyway because if you're gonna send it through a moisture tester, yeah, um, uh, that's so easy just to grab three ears out of the pan and go frum, 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 and then te- I test it right there, and it's like okay, it needs more time, and throw all the corn I just tested right back in the bin, right, <laughs> and uh, off I went and said. And then after a while, you start learning that, yeah, it's going to need two more hours, three more hours. Uh, it's going to need another half a day. You, you, you kind of figure it out. You, yeah, you, know. you get a feel for your system. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a learning curve like everything else. Um, and that's why I think I was telling you earlier that it's, it's kind of an art. And, I mean, there's science to it, but it's, it's, it's like it's a feel, you know. Um, I love the chew thing. I never thought about that one. <laughs> I now think you I, tell me. I think, <laughs> I think I got that because uh, my grandparents are from northwestern Ohio, so we'd go out there for the 4th of July, which is about the time that they harvest wheat, and they would sample it and chew on it and get a feel. for. So I guess Where that's are they where from in northwestern from. Ohio? Where is near, it? Near, near Delta, Defiance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know Defiance. Up there. That's Yeah, I grew up I grew up about an hour south of there. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's and then the cleaning was a whole process too. I mean, you got to get a cleaner, and then it's about air. You know how much air you pump through the cleaner as you're cleaning it because too much air and you blow the kernels out. Not enough air, and the kernels the particles stay in. Yeah, you get chaff. And and then uh, ultimately you you would head to a gravity table system um, after the cleaner to get those bigger particles out. But I, I never. I never, my customers never complained that when they, the bigger particles would be in there and there was so few of them that they never complained. Like a little piece of cob or something. It's a little piece of cob. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And if you ate it, it's not going to hurt you. It's just a piece of cob. Um, yeah. Um, but it doesn't pop well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, neither does the chaff. <laughs> no. And you know, and though they, in the industry, they call them red dogs. Those little, I, I always call them wings. Yeah. And so when you like, you pour out your, your dried popcorn. Do you see that kind of dust come up? Mm-hmm. It's it's the wings. It's it's they're right at the tip of the where the corn goes into the cob, and these little wings come up, and and they don't separate easy. So they the big boys send them through polishers to take those wings off, huh. right? And I never did, and no one ever complained. 
I never had a customer complain about the wings. I think that's the, there's a lot of variation and um, variety with that type of wings or shape or size and or amount pops, whether it's expands to 42% or 30% because I know the other... Uh, I know you did some of the colored varieties, and they're generally can be a little bit smaller of a popped size. The, they they generally are. Um, the blue that we grew has a decent pop size, not the biggest, but yeah. it's 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 decent. Um, versus versus Redenbacher's out west, Red, they want big, big fluffy, fluffy, consistent, big fluffy. Yeah. And and if you taste Redenbacher's, which I always tell people, this is this it's a great one to taste. It's beautiful looking popcorn. <laughs> It is tasteless and chewy. <laughs> it, it really has zero flavor. It's made for butter. If you don't put butter on it, you got nothing. And and uh, my daughter came up with our slogan for ours, which is too good for butter. <laughs> and our popcorns actually tasted good without butter. Right. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it, and I, you're definitely right about the expansion Um with the red dogs, the uh, the wings, I, I don't know. I think you might be right with that. I, I don't have enough experience. Um, I've never really compared them. I just, I always always had that. Those you sell a plastic bag full of popcorn, and the wings are clinging to the side when it's empty, you know, type of thing. But no one ever complained. No yeah. one, no one, no one ever complained about cob in it either. But I, I could see the pieces of cob. <laughs> there wouldn't be many. I mean, it might be. One or two in a bag, but right. it bothered me. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but it didn't bother them. So, were you sizing the kernels at all? The shell, the cleaner sizes them. Okay, so if they're uh, if they're too small, they slip through the system and they get they get hucked out. Yeah, um, they don't want the small ones because they don't pop anyway. Mm. So you want them out. Uh, they don't pop consistently. I should right. say. Right. And then uh, it's it's actually it, as they grew more popcorn. So you you're a big sweet corn grower. So the red winged blackbirds would always cause me havoc in my early sweet corns. And then they um, settled. They they liked the popcorn better. So they would jump on the popcorn and they would just eat the tops of the ears. Right. Yep. The small kernels. So they oh. wouldn't do me any damage anyway. <laughs> so it's like. Go to town, guys. <laughs> Have fun. You're, You've they, got they, enough to share in your... They're, they're staying out of my sweet corn, which I really care about. Oh, yeah. They're eating the parts of my popcorn, which I don't care about. They don't wreck the ear. That's true. They just nibble on the tip. And it, and if if they... It, sometimes they'll, like, plunge into the ear. Very rarely. They, they like... It, it, well, why do I care? It's going to go through the system. No one ever knows that they ate that ear. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be cleaned, cooked. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the things I would do is I did a, a thumbnail test, and you might want to start doing that, is I would peel back the ear on it while it's still on the stalk and stick my thumb on it and press in. Yep. And if I could make an indent, it's not ready to pick. Right. And when it when I can't indent it, then I can pick it. I was trying to go by color to, to make sure it was kind of goldening up, but then I realized once I put it in the dryer, it would go from a light yellow to like dark golden orange almost mm. and I went, oh that was interesting huh huh yeah i didn't i don't know about that because I, I i wasn't growing the variety the blue would go come out of the field at a very dark blue and then go light blue when drying interesting yeah the red didn't seem to change color at all it seemed to be the same 
Um, yeah, it's likely varietal. Yeah, nuances. Yeah, yeah. We got. I, I was over in uh, um, East Africa. You'll love this. Is and uh, I was working on a, a project. I I volunteer sometimes and um, with USAID projects, and they give me a a free flight, a place to stay, and I go work with farmers. And uh, I was working with a uh, farmer, and he had trouble getting um, open-pollinated sweet corn. The people in Malawi love sweet corn, but they can't get the open-pollinated varieties. And so they can't save their own seed because it's all hybrids. And and I said, I, I can get you some because I know um, high mowing has that yeah, yep. some a variety. And I said, I can I can get you some of that. And um, and I said, it, uh, and he goes, in exchange... I said, you guys, there, there's a popcorn he was growing. And uh, and it was pretty tasty. And I said, I, I'd like to have that. And it was a golden popcorn. And I, I grew it. And oh, my word. The, the plants were 15 feet high. <laughs> uh, not 10, like normal popcorn. They were 15 feet high. They were fat as hell. Each plant set five tillers out. So... Typically, you'll have that one plant and then a couple little tiny tillers at the bottom. Each, each plant set five tillers out. Each plant had five ears of corn on it. Whoa. And, and sometimes two. <laughs> and, and it didn't make it, but the growing season wasn't long enough. Oh. And it just didn't make it. And, 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 I, it, it, and it's never going to make it. It wasn't uh-huh. like we had an early frost. It's just not going to make it in Vermont. But the biomass on that was incredible. And I was thinking, I, I, the, I showed it to a couple of dairy farmers, and, and they were like, yeah, they kind of shrugged it off. It's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Look at the biomass yeah, of biomass this. Biomass is biomass. When you're feeding. Jeez, <laughs> I mean, I'm grow. I mean, you, what are you talking about? This thing was a, it was a freaking jungle. Yeah. So, I don't know if a corn chopper could have cut it. <laughs> it was so much biomass Bog, in there. So... But it was it was fun. I wish I I wish it would have come through, but it didn't. So. Close. Uh, circling back to selling the farm, new owners. How how did that transition or transaction go? Oh, it was great. Um, I couldn't have sold it to better people. Um, how did you sell it? Did you go through a, a program? Uh, so what we did is. Um, I, I talked to a bunch of uh, uh, different uh, folks who kind of dabble in helping farmers sell stuff, um, and then I they don't do it they they do it for nonprofits. They're not doing it uh, like as realtors. And then um, we put a package together, um, and the land and house were so much money, <laughs> and and then all the equipment came with the farm. You had to buy it. It was, you couldn't negotiate it out. If you didn't want it, sell it. It was a deal. And I, I put prices on it that I knew um, they could sell it for. Mm-hmm. That no problem. Like if, if something was worth 500 bucks, I priced it for 500. I didn't try to get 700 for it because I just, I, I wanted it to be fair. And I also didn't want to have to do an auction. I didn't want to have to, yeah, yeah. to sell things. Well, um, especially if they wanted to do the same sort of thing, that would... And, and she's, equipment to get started with <laughs> and, she, and she's got a, she she came from new york state she's the main farmer and she had a lot of her own stuff 
Mm-hmm. Um, but she kept a lot of my stuff. Um, and she's gotten rid of some, but she's kept a lot of it. So it's, um, and so, uh, we, we then just put it on, um, um, what is it called? Uh, farm link or yeah. what's it? Is that, was there's, there's a, there's a farm finder, a farm. Yeah. Vermont farm link. I think, I think it's something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> we had, uh, basically three offers in seven days. Whoa. Um, and, and part of it was our timing was good. We were selling it when the real estate market was hot. Um, uh, that, that was, that was good, but it's also, we had a, a profitable operation and the house and everything looked nice. We, we kept everything nice. It's, it's, there was no weeds growing. Um, all the equipment was well-maintained. The barn was in good shape. The house was in good shape. We had just put in an underground pipeline for, for irrigation and so it was, it basically was a turnkey. You just, you just took it over. Um, and we didn't have any stipulations. You didn't have to keep the name if you didn't want it. There was no, that was up to them. Yeah. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have any uh, terms. We, we actually started, um, as I was thinking of getting out, I talked to Vern Grubinger and, and asked him, you know, he must have these conversations with people like me before. And he, <laughs> he really hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, cause what you told me earlier is people just farm till they drop dead in the field one day or till they can't do it any longer. Um, and, and so he said, post it on the listserv, see what if people want to talk. And we, I posted on the listserv and there was like 10 people who said, yeah, let's talk about this. Mm. You know, I'm, having the same kind of thoughts. I'm thinking that I might be done too. Oh, that, that kind of yeah. conversation. Yes. Um, and I was surprised that how many people and some, some, some of the folks I knew and some, some were folks I didn't know, but I found it interesting is there was a lot of the folks were like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm done, but I don't want to go without turning my farm over to somebody. I want to train the new person. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that. Cause that's what I wanted to do. But you know something? You could be sentencing yourself to farm forever <laughs> because that person may or may not come along. Yeah, or you you don't you want it to be most successful, so you're not necessarily going to feel like okay, they've got it now. Like you, you I have a feeling like you might want to just like they're not ready for me to leave yet. Well, it's and it's some people were trying to transition and we're doing exactly that. But some people were like, I'm just you know, I'm going to stay until I can find that right person. It's like, mm. what if you never find the right person? Some people do, but most people don't. And so it's like, I, I, I can't wait for that right person. Because <laughs> I, I, I thought I had the right person a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And thought, oh, yeah, this will be perfect. I, you know, I can start training them now. And in five years, I'll be done. And, you know, and or six years or seven years. And we could farm together. And I can teach them everything I know. And turn it over to them. But it, when you sell it the way I did, the, 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 the issue becomes is they're going to take it in whatever direction they want. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have that sort of, you can't mold them anymore. <laughs> and so you let go of that control. That's totally let go. Of. It's, it's theirs. They do, they do with what, with it, what they want. Um, so I mean, it's that, or I keep farming till I, can't farm anymore and i didn't want to do that right right so you you sold it to new farmers 
did you help them out the first year or anything to kind oh, yeah. of help them lay the land? Or uh, I was that was part <laughs> of the deal. Is uh, I was at their beck and call mm-hmm. that, and she didn't need help with like how do I grow beets? She knows how to do that. How do I grow carrots? That's not her thing. Her her thing was like, oh, um, we're having trouble with the irrigation pump. Some of the infrastructure. Yeah, sort of you know, stuff, the... those little things you know <laughs> that that you can... How do I start this thing? Right. Exactly. Where Where is this? Where do I locate this on the property? Where is this? Where is that? Um, how do, you know, where is the shutoff for this in the house? That kind of stuff. And I just come right over and show them. Um, and then, you know, she had, uh, I think, uh, she had, the only thing she had never done before was uh, done hay. And so mm-hmm. the... the the first time or two that she did cut hay, I, I came over and showed her, you know, this is dry, it's not dry, this is the, you know, how, how do you not the baler and things like that. Um, and now she doesn't, uh, I don't know if she called me at all this past year. If she did, it was just in passing when she saw me. <laughs> but um, but I'm still at her beck and call. <laughs> if, she, <laughs> if she wants help, I'll, I'll come right over. Right, because that's I, I want to see her succeed. I, I want her to be successful. So if if it takes me a few hours every now and then to make her successful, I'm so willing to do that. Well, right, you've you've learned so much about that space and, and set it up like right. You're saving her so much time to figure it out. Right, uh, and but I think you know this last year was a big learning curve year for her. This now she's on her. This past year was her second year, so I think she's you know, got less questions. Yeah, yeah, you get the, the flywheel starting to spin. Right. Which is good. Right, right. Uh, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but I just want to circle back, see if you had anything else to say. What What does sustainable farming mean to you, and what did you do to achieve that? Yeah, I did, I did talk about that, how sustainability begins with the letter P <laughs> for profit. And that's and I, that's what it... Uh, it when I say this, I think people automatically go to, oh, he's just in it for the money. <laughs> if I was in something for the money, it wouldn't be farming, first <laughs> of all. But I, I want to make a living. And and that's what sustainability is. If you can make a living doing it, then you're sustainable. Um, if you're killing yourself to do it and you're, you're miserable, that's not sustainable because you can't keep doing it year after year. Um, I, th- I think sustainability also goes beyond just farming. It goes beyond with your whole life. So I could stay farming. And is that sustainable for me as a person? Right. Um, and I see, like, I, I, I'm not going to mention names, but I've seen, I see people and I've talked to people who are miserable and they farm because they don't know how to do, they they're in that site. They don't want to give up the identity of a farmer or they haven't found the right person. Or it's like, this isn't sustainable. Like if you're living your life, like you have unlimited lifespan and you don't, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll be lucky to have, um, you know, 20 more years left in me. So really I'm going to farm for my last 20 years. I, I think I'd rather, Hike Kilimanjaro. Yeah, do some do some new things, like you said. Yeah. So I I think that's that's, and and I think the answer most people would give to that is they most people would say the answer is sustainability. They talk about soils and 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 
you know, and, and um, biodiversity and things like that, which it's all important, and, and I believe in all that stuff. But it doesn't matter how noble you are with that stuff. If you can't make money, you're not sustainable. Because you, we live in a real world here, and 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 you got to pay your taxes. And if you can't do that kind of stuff, then you you lose the farm. And and the other thing is, if your farm falls down around you, I see this too. People are barely sustainable. They're staying in business, but their infrastructure is falling apart all around them. Um, house is falling down. Barns are falling down. You got nothing to sell. Mm. That's that's so. That's what I had to sell. And, and it turns out that for every year, I'm not going to say this number, but for every year I was farming, if I look at how much we sold the farm for compared to what we bought it for, um, we made a lot of money <laughs> just doing the real estate transaction because we kept it nice. Yeah. Um, it, it truly was an investment yeah. for you. Yeah, and I don't. I don't let weeds grow. I don't let. I mean, I don't burdocks growing around the farm. That's not going to happen. It's all trimmed <laughs> down. It's all looks nice. You know, there's no junk equipment around. I don't. I don't. Um, and that's it's it's part of what you have to sell. And and I know in the in the, when the farming season's going on, you're a big yank and you got a million things to do, and it's like, oh, I can't. I I don't want to weed whack. It actually, in reality, only takes like an hour and a half to weed whack, <laughs> and you only have to do it like every three weeks. It's not like it's that bad and it looks great when you get done it is very satisfying (laughs) if you don't do it it's almost impossible to knock it down because the plants are so big and it's and and then it becomes an onerous chore and then you're certainly not going to do it Mm -hmm. so so my advice is weed whack get rid of all your junk weed whacking and junk equipment is that an aesthetics thing for you or was that a more like efficiency we don't need that so get it out of here sort of thing uh, less than that, more the first, the aesthetics. And if, you know, if the farm looks nice, the two things happen. I learned this. I worked at a metal stamping company once, and that factory floor was immaculate. The break room, immaculate. And they had uh, the pride the employees took in that place was very high because it looked great, and they took good care of it, Right. And it's the same thing. So if you have a nice looking farm, the employees, first of all, appreciate that and they'll and they they value it and they'll work harder and treat things nicer. And and the customers love it. So if you have a farm stand and it looks everything on the farm looks beautiful, they love it. So it's it's gonna bring in and, and it gives them confidence. Right. That that they're supporting a winning cause and that this is truly a, um, you must know what you're doing because look how beautiful it is type of thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, don't ignore your real estate. <laughs> I mean, because that's what I do now. I buy old houses, I fix them up and sell them. And make so them look pretty. <laughs> I make them look pretty. So I'm buying crap houses. I mean, they look like crap when I buy them. And in the end, they look great. And so no matter how run down you've made your farm look, you can bring it back. Mm-hmm. It just takes elbow grease. Um, it takes time. And um, and a lot of the stuff doesn't necessarily take a lot of money. It just takes a lot of time. So, But if you let it run down, you got less. Was that a, a personal choice for you? Or did you have your employees on board and they, they helped 
have no. that culture of cleaning things up and, and taking care of equipment. Once you once you clean it up, they clean up. They'll, then they'll do it. So you set the model. You set the model, <laughs> right? But yeah, no, it was it was me setting the pace. But yeah, no, I, I just wanted them to do the farm work. I, I kind of kept the the farm looking nice, all the maintenance stuff. That's sort of what I did. Well, that's kind of the fun stuff, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they can go pick beets. Yeah. <laughs> I've picked plenty of those in my I, life. i got to go mow. <laughs> uh, how, how big a crew did you have kind of when things were rocking and rolling? Uh, see, our thing, we were lean, mean, fighting machine. Um, small. Uh, so uh, three of us full-time on the farm, but two of us are working um, more, you know, two of us are working 70, 70 hours. Right. So what's that really translate to? It's maybe <laughs> five. <laughs> so, uh, it, yeah, I learned to, to um, I, I finally went to the uh, H2A worker, and uh, I got this guy from Mexico who, um, it was great. Still a fantastic friend of mine today. <laughs> I went to his wedding in Mexico. Wow. It was so much fun. <laughs> um, but he, I mean, he was upset if I didn't give him 70 hours a week you know he wanted 70 80 90 didn't care <laughs> keep you know, busy he, he's got Fair a family back in Mexico yeah. he wants to go home he just wants to make money right yeah and so so we didn't I didn't need that many employees if I got you know Danny around who wants to work all these hours and I'll just give him all the hours he wants so yeah just three and then but when we go to sell at the farmer's market <clears throat> the in, in the peak season, we'd have four of us working. Yeah. And that was actually the busiest day all week. I mean, we worked hard at the farmer's market. <laughs> so, you know, you're flat out for four hours. Um, Just going. So, yeah. So, I, you know, if you factor in that, then, you know, maybe another person on top. But Right, right. Yeah, you count your your full time is, yeah, every, yeah. every day, including weekends for the right. summer season. Exactly. Right. No, that's that's a lot of... That's a lot of farming for your, like you said. That's a lean crew. That's yeah, we were lean, yeah. But you know, that's I'm efficient. I'm efficient. Yeah, that's another thing I'm good at. Oh. Again, not probably the technically the best grower in the world, but you know, that's the other thing we did is we had a zero weed tolerance policy that paid off over the years. That we just didn't let anything go to seed. And it, you have to work like hell to reclaim an area, but once you get it, the area reclaimed and nothing goes to seed, every year you weed less. But you have to stay on it. So you know, con you're constantly weeding, but there are not many of them. And so mm -hmm. you do like we could take a tractor through a, 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 a some popcorn and then go back like two days later. We'd go through with a hand hose to pick up what the tractor missed. And it, you know, it was all going according to plan. You might, one guy might be able to get through an acre in an hour and a half. And that's picking up the things that the tractor missed. Yeah. Now, I didn't have to do that. I could have been, I could have let those go to seed. And the corn crop would have been just as good. But then next year, I'm dealing with extra weed seeds. And it's like, so I'd always tell people we're weeding for next year. Mm -hmm. It's not about this year. This, this year we got it, but next year I'm weeding for And so when it, the, the year I sold the farm, I knew I was selling it, but I kept it weed-free because I said, I'm not going to. 
I made it weed free. I'm <laughs> selling it weed free. I'm not gonna. What um, happens after that's on them? But. That's on them. But they're getting they're getting what I told them I was going to give them, which is a weed free field. No, that's nice too because a, a lot of farmers, like you said, they they get tired, they don't invest, they don't clean things up, and then like you said, they don't have a lot to sell, or it's it's harder for a new farmer to pick up something where the weeds got bad and the the fields are tired and not fertilized and things like that. So that probably helped Ashley out a lot that you kept it going. Yeah. You have to ask Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think so, but yeah. you know, yeah. but you, it's not like you're like, Oh, the lust, you know, the fun of farming is fading off. So you didn't put in as much effort. It sounds like you, you still gave it the effort right to the end. Yep. Yep. I did. I, I think had I stayed at it more, I wouldn't have. <laughs> right. Right. You, you quit while you were ahead. I, I quit while I was ahead. That's exactly right. I was ahead of the game, and I, but I I saw myself as not being ahead of the game in the future. And there was something else I wanted to do. Yeah. I, and it's like, I'm not going to do it. I mean, this the first year I didn't farm. I took a trip to Zimbabwe to work with farmers. <laughs> I went to England to hike. I went to Newfoundland for, to, drove up to Newfoundland for uh, two and a half weeks. Because you could. Because I could. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I, I never could have done any of those things. And I did them all. So. Uh, so do you say you retired from farming or do you say you just changed careers? I tell people I changed careers. Because people think, people around here think I'm, the, the, the word was is I've retired. It's like, I haven't retired I'm still working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just so, changing it yeah, up. Yeah, I just changed careers. Yeah. Uh, what did you do to disconnect from the farm that has a never-ending to-do list? Like he says, it's it's always on your mind, but was there something you did that kind of helped take a breath of fresh air and collect yourself? You mean while I was farming or yeah. after I stopped farming? Well, both, but while while you were farming. Well, while I was farming, I tried to carve out, uh, didn't always happen, but I tried to carve out Sundays, especially in the afternoon, to go hiking. Mm. Um, and, and maybe even mid-morning I could get out and, and go hiking. Um, it's, if we were haying, that was the only thing that kept <laughs> me in town. So we have to make hay, you have to make hay. But it's, and that also helped a lot when Danny came on board the guy from Mexico, because then he could watch the farm stand. Mm. So if someone needed to get corn or get more lettuce on there, he was he was there. He he wanted the hours. So asking him to work on a Sunday wasn't. At first, I thought I can't ask him to work on Sunday, but I, I realized no, he he actually wants to work on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, that that's I think that's what I would do. Um, and then I always always tried to get away for a period of days is. In, in June, it was always seemed to be like a little window where I could like skate out for like three to five days. Um, once once things got planted. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, and But then I came back and it would always be, <clears throat> even in the three or five days or seven days, it'd be a mess when I got That's back. That's when the, le- the weeds leap. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it was always like, it's, yeah, I paid for it, but I tried to do that. Yeah. Uh, farming can be a lonely occupation. How did you connect with people to break that isolation? 
Well, in the uh, I think two things. Um, you know, I was worried about that because I was coming from school teaching where you're not and never alone to uh, farming. And so I, I wondered how I was going to do with that. And it turned out to be not an, even an issue. I think the two things that uh, helped me a lot with that is, uh, number one, the farmer's market. So on Saturday, I got lots of people coming up, talking to me, interacting with me, um, giving me really positive things. And and number two is my uh, off-farm hobbies, which this will seem weird, but... Um, I sit on boards, school boards, <laughs> planning commissions, whatever. And so uh, usually it's, I'd probably average two meetings a week. Um, and then often sometimes we'll, depending on what the board is, we'll head up town and have a couple of beers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how I connect with people. Yeah. If you're on boards, yeah, a couple couple meetings a week plus your farmer's market, that's quite a bit of social interaction. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I didn't, I never felt. Uh, absence that way how has the marketplace changed from during your career of farming i don't know if the marketplace has changed so much as what i sold changed so when i first got into farming you sold a lot of leaf lettuce and when i stopped you sold not not that much you sold a lot of mescaline (laughs) (laughs) you know you sell a lot of uh arugula um, so those kind of things changed, uh, but I don't, it doesn't strike me that the market changed. I mean, my, my personal right, touch on right. the market changed cause I stopped, I tried to get out of wholesaling as quick as I could. It took me a long time, but, um, this is, if you're going to wholesale, wholesale, <laughs> don't, don't mess around with it. Don't nickel and dime it, you know? And then, and then people would do things like they would, wholesale uh, a uh, box of broccoli to the uh, a restaurant and it would take them uh, 30 minutes to deliver it. And it was just one box of broccoli for $40. Compost it. It doesn't add it, up. It doesn't add up. <laughs> you can't make money on that. It's Your delivery time ate up everything. And I'd tell people, restaurants would call me up and say, oh, yeah, we're interested in buying from you. And I'd say, look, if you're not going to hit a certain dollar amount, I'm not even going to sell. I mean, I'm, I'll sell, but you have to come get it. Right, right. I'll sell to you on the farm all the time, you know, but I'm not going to j- deliver for a box of broccoli. That's not going to happen. Yeah, Delivering is expensive when you add up your time and travel time, you know, equipment, wear, tear, mileage, whatever. And then opportunity cost. What didn't you get done on the farm because you were delivering? Right. So, uh, so you know, unless you're hitting a certain dollar amount, I don't even think about it. I don't, I don't, you know, the other, th- what I'll say about the marketplace is, Every year there seem to be more growers, and every year there seem to be more market. So I never, I never lost my share because somebody else came in. I never lost. Yeah, they might have like maybe I was selling lettuce to that co-op, and somebody else came in and I snoozed for a second, and they jumped in and they took that over. It never seemed to bother my bottom line. <laughs> I, I was like, like, great. They took it over. I guess I won't do that anymore, and that's okay. And I'm still making more money than I did last year. So this is all working out. And so all these new growers would keep coming in, and it just seemed like the market kept expanding. Yeah. Um, 
and the other thing is, is you don't hear as much when I first started uh, there, there there was a, I used to call it the starving farmer uh, thing where people used to talk about how how they weren't making money and how proud they were of not making money and and the starving farmer like aren't we great because we're noble and we're not making money and we're just growing food for people um you don't hear about that as much i think people are kind of coming around to like i actually have to make some money (laughs) um but you still do hear it occasionally and that's the one thing i I actually would caution farmers to get that out of your head actually you're to me what i was doing is yeah maybe I was growing food for people that's ancillary to everything. I was outside, I was doing what I wanted to do. I was making a living, and these people were supporting me doing it. Awesome. And I never thought saw myself as any more noble than the UPS guy because I need our gal. I needed them to deliver the part to fix my <laughs> tractor, right? I yep. couldn't do it without them. I can't do it without the guy who delivers, or the gal who delivers the uh, tanker trucks of diesel. Right. I, I can't do Everybody it without them. Everybody plays a part. We're all, we all play a part, and I just happen to be at the end of the food part of it. But mm-hmm. I can't do it without them. So, um, so I think sometimes we put ourselves on a pedestal too much and think that what we're doing is noble. And I don't think it's any more noble than uh, like they said the ups driver like you said we're just facing the customer you're right we're at the top of the food chain so to speak yeah and or and 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 then i think if you dealt with someone who's out there growing twenty thousand acres of broccoli in the um, (laughs) central valley they'll say what are you even in business right i can i can supply that whole market we don't even need you doing that so is he more time, is he more noble than I am at all? Yeah. <laughs> is he more noble than I am because he grows more broccoli than I do at a cheaper price? <laughs> right. So, so anyway, I, I I just don't. I never bought into that, and I I think it's dangerous that people do. Um, buy into what I'm doing is extra special because it's not. And we're more. I will say we're more special than the people selling Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs> That we are more special than them. Yeah. <clears throat> That's one thing I often talk about um, with new growers or, or growers who I know have a lot of other farms around them is sometimes we'll talk about the competition. But I think the conversation very quickly goes to the rising tide lifts all ships. And the more people I interview and the more farms I visit, everybody has a different story. Everybody has a different niche. Even in my town, we're growing pick your own flowers. We've there's the next town over is also growing pick your own flowers, but our target audience and, and the people who are coming to our farms are two completely different people, and that's totally okay. Right, right. There's a, another farm here in town that um, we would loan each other equipment. Yeah. We're both at the Norwich Farmers Market, <laughs> seemingly competing with each other, but they didn't have a farm stand. Yeah, and I do. They have a CSA, and I didn't. Right. And and where we competed didn't seem to be a problem, and we exchanged knowledge and <laughs> equipment. And I, I totally agree. I think that um, I mean all the car dealers, right? They all locate right next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so they're not afraid of their competition. 
yeah. right? So they're like, bring it on. This if we're going to make it easy for people to shop for a car, we're going to be all right next to each other. <laughs> there you go. So I, I I I agree. I think I think people find their own little niches, and sometimes they compete a little bit, but it's not in a um, uh, a super intensive like one of us has to win, one of us is going to lose type yeah. of way. Uh, what's one of your best memories from your first ten years and the last ten years? Jesus. Uh-huh. Some of these questions. <laughs> the, these these last couple ones actually came from Mark and Krista. I asked, "What would they ask?" Uh, and they, they uh, Mark and Krista, yeah, from Jericho Sandler. Yep. Oh no, kidding. Uh, okay, what was the question again? Uh, um, your best memory from your first and or last ten years. Guys, it's it's really hard to do those like, kind <laughs> yeah. of things because that's I mean. Uh, or uh, here's a little bit it's similar. Um, what's been your greatest achievement? I think I think probably ultimately the greatest achievement in, for my farming career is the fact that I was able to sell my farm. That that sh- showed that I had built something up that somebody else wanted to take over. So I think that was probably it. In terms of memories, the first ten years, I know, I, they're so interfe- <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to to do because the the farm life is so um, all encompassing. So I, I think about taking my kids down to the river, which was right on the farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't leave the farm to go swimming in the river. Um, there's not one memory; it's a story. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think that's that, that, yeah. Thanks for putting words in my mouth, but I think that's it. I don't think I have a. I mean, like I, I told you earlier about you know like that big hay run or mm-hmm. you know the uh, first ten years. Okay, here's a story. The first in, within the first ten years, we had like we knocked a crap ton of hay down. I mean, had just. A, the, probably a thousand bales on the ground, and um, someone was supposed to come and bale, and his he hurt his back. That's right, and then someone else was supposed to come and help me collect, and his wife went into labor. Oh jeez! And so I'm like, holy crap! I got a thousand bales down. I got I got all this. I got <laughs> not unbailed. Yeah, right. unbailed. Just sitting on the ground, right? And so I think, so we just, my wife started making all these phone calls and all these people just started arriving out of nowhere and I'm on the tractor spitting the bales out and all of a sudden these people are coming in and, and literally got, and the rain's coming, right? Of rain's course, coming. Yeah. And literally got the last load in the barn and the rain just comes. That's, that's kind of a good memory. <laughs> all us hay farmers have it memory like that yeah it, we have memories we don't think about the ones where <laughs> yeah. we actually didn't get it in <laughs> yeah exactly we don't talk about those um uh, last 10 years i don't know not not that i don't have memories right, i right. think i've i think the last 10 years it's more of a story it's like this meeting uh danny the guy from mexico just um i mean he's really influenced my life in ways he doesn't even know I mean, I'm trying very hard to learn Spanish better. <laughs> um, I listen, all the music I listen to now is 
all Mexican music because oh, I really like their music because <laughs> he listened to it and it's like I, li- I like this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think that's that's a strong association with that because I think he's been a positive influence in my life. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I've talked to other growers who were thinking about getting into the H two A program, wanting to bring those workers on. Um, was that difficult to do? No, it's a bureaucracy. You got to yeah. fight through that. Um, but once you're there, I mean, these these they're they're great. So in the end, I had uh, Danny's brother also came in and worked for me as well. It's uh, the other growers told me I was going to go there, and I kept saying no, I, I have no trouble hiring Americans. And then I started having trouble, <laughs> and um, and, the, and these guys will bail you out. There's like I said, you can't you can't overwork them. There's, I, I wouldn't call them better necessarily better workers than Americans, but they'll stay in the saddle longer. They have nothing else to do. Yeah, that's the only reason they're here is to make money. So, think about it. If you went somewhere to make money for six months, yeah, you're gonna do you, all you can. <laughs> you're gonna make all you can. You can't go home. <laughs> your family's your family's waiting for you to come back, and so you just make all your money you can. So, yeah, I've only really heard good things about. Yeah. about that other than it's a learning curve for both people about um, managing them and, and um, training and things like that. But you're going to have that with anybody. Yep. 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 And these, these guys are they're uh, you know, they, they do every, they got all the checks that I want with, from an employee. They're <laughs> honest. They care, <laughs> you know, they, they show up. <laughs> they show up. That's that's really, that's check, 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 you know. Yep. It's time for our special segment, What's in Your Pocket? On the day-to-day basis, what are you carrying with you? And that could be now, especially doing carpenter things, like what's... What do you always have on you that, that makes your day and the job go as planned? Well, I got my tool belt. Right, exactly. You got so a tool belt. So, what's on, in your tool belt? On my tool belt, I got like the always always has the same things in the same places. I got my wire cutters and my wire strippers. I got my multi-head screwdriver. Uh, I got a pair of pliers. I got a utility knife. I got a piece of sandpaper. Very important. Hmm. I have a chisel, a screwdriver I can use as a pounding device. I don't <laughs> give a shit about it. Um, hammer, tape measure, marker, pencil. <laughs> Always there. And I wear it almost all day, all the time. No matter what you're doing. Not, yeah, not, sometimes I'll take it off, but most of the time it's there because then... I don't have to like walk around and say where's where's the screwdriver, right? Where did I set it down? I set it down here, even if it doesn't make any sense. I know where everything is if I. Well, carry whether it. you're flame um, framing or doing electrical, yeah. like it's generally yeah. those tools yeah. Yeah. across the board. Yeah, that's why at the wire strippers. So, so that's only used when I'm doing electrical. But right now I'm doing a demo job, and so you come across wires, and it's like, yeah, I don't want that wire there. <laughs> Right, so you're always doing some wiring all the time. Yeah, yeah, Spe- yeah. Especially with the renovations, you're mm-hmm. not doing new construction where it's very 
right. you can do one thing at a time. Absolutely. I've not, I'm doing multi-things at the same time. Right. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Any, any further advice for growers? Beyond just saying, you know, enjoy it, but don't let it own you. It's not, it doesn't define you. So when you no longer enjoy it, stop. And if you enjoy it till you die, great. And if that's what you want to do till you die, because that's what I thought I wanted to do till I died, but it isn't. <laughs> so acknowledge it, embrace it, and go to the next place. But don't, don't do it just because you thought you were going to do it forever. Right? Yeah. So I guess it'd be like a marriage, right? You married your mar- you, you married your spouse because you thought I'm in this for the long run. And and but if things go real south, would you really want to stay in a bad marriage forever? Even though you worked on it and you tried to change it and it's just not happening. It's, get out. <laughs> right? So I'm still married, by the way, to the same woman. It's the same one I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, that that Are I haven't remarried. No, no, that I'm that I'm I'm sticking with that one for now. Good for so. now. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and any advice in order to to keep a keep a happy wife while while farming? Because that can be challenging too. I think you should ask her. That <laughs> what uh, I I remember when we went to visit a friend. Um, really good friend and Sharon told our friend she goes uh, Gio's going to sell the farm and the friend gets up and just goes oh honey and she gives my wife a big hug big hug I'm like whoa so this has been hard on Sharon my wife Sharon the whole time and she's never complained Hmm. about it but my friend immediately didn't turn to me and say anything she just turned to Sharon and said congratulations interesting <laughs> I thought it was really interesting actually I was blown away actually by it hmm. um, so I think most most couples tend to farm together so I, I think we're a bit unusual that we don't I don't know. You seem to talk to more people than I do. Some do, some don't. Yeah, it's it's uh, like someone told me when we had kids is that the kids are going to be around for eighteen, twenty years, and then are gone, and you're still going to be married. So, what do you need to do for yourselves to keep that relationship going? And it's a lot easier doing what we did as vegetable farmers because winters get light, you know, and you don't have to work so hard so you can spend more time on the relationship. But I think summers were hard for her, but I think she's really good at dealing with it. So mm. I, I don't Under, She understood that you had to put in the extra time in the summer. Yeah. You know? Yeah, she didn't. A lot of people just wouldn't get that or accept that i think i think they'd be like well i want you here on on the weekends you know and you yeah. can't do that with the yeah farm. no she didn't that's great no she was she was good about that but i think i think she silently complained like i said with her friend's reaction that told me that but you you weren't really aware that that was no. that yeah that's no. blew me away hmm. 
and, and, and you know, it's the, the one thing I'll say is uh, what, what has helped is I feel free. Hmm. I feel liberated. Like I can do what I want when I want to do it. I'm not beholden to anybody's schedule. <laughs> so I'm still self-employed. And I, uh, I work on old houses. And if I leave an old house for two weeks, it looks just the same as when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has changed. Try, do, die, try doing that go. on your farm. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks right. for, for sitting down with me and talking farming. Oh, sure. Appreciate um, it. I hope it, uh, I hope it helps somebody. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm All right. sure it does. Thanks. Thanks for coming, Andrew. Yeah. Bye. And that was the farmer's share. I hope you enjoyed that episode getting to know Gio of Hurricane Flats Farm and hearing his farming story. The new owners of the farm are on Instagram if you'd like to see some photos of the farm at Hurricane Flats. The farmer's share is supported by a grant offered by the USDA Specialty Crop Block Program from the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Food, and Markets. This funding helps to cover some of my time and travel in order to produce these podcasts for the next two and a half years. The USDA Agricultural Marketing Service supports projects that address the needs of U.S. specialty crop growers and strengthens local and regional food systems. I have no doubt that this podcast will meet those needs and help educate growers to support the industry. This show also is supported by the Ag Engineering Program of the University of Vermont Extension. If you enjoy this show and want to help support its programming, you can make a one-time or reoccurring donation on our website by visiting thefarmershare.com support. We also receive funding from the Vermont Vegetable and Berry Growers Association. The VVBGA is a nonprofit organization funded in 1976 to promote the economic, environmental, and social sustainability of vegetable and berry farming in Vermont. Their membership includes over 400 farms across Vermont and beyond, as well as about 50 businesses and organizations that provide products and services of all types to their members. Benefits to members include access to the VVBGA listserv, to buy, sell plants and equipment, share farming information, and tap the vast experience of our growers. Access the Community Accreditation for Produce Safety, also known as CAPS, this program is designed for growers, by growers, to help you easily meet market and regulatory food safety expectations. You can access the VVBGA's soil health platform, where you can organize all the soil tests and create and store your soil amendment plans and records. Access to webinars for growers in the VVBGA annual meeting. An email subscription to the Vermont Vegetable and Berry newsletter camaraderie, enhanced communication, and fellowship among commercial growers. Memberships are on a per-farm, per-calendar-year basis, and annual dues this year are $80. These funds pay for the organization's operating costs and support educational programs and research projects. These funds also support projects that address grower needs around ag engineering, high tunnel production, pest management, pollinators, produce safety, and soil health. Become a member today to be a part of and further support the veg and berry industry. 
You can visit thefarmershare.com to listen to previous interviews or see photos, videos, or links discussed from the conversation. If you don't want to miss the next episode, enter your email address on our website and you'll get a note in your inbox when the next one comes out. The Farmer's Share has a YouTube channel with videos from several of the farm visits. We're also on Instagram and that's where you can be reminded about the latest episode or see photos from the visit. Lastly, if you're enjoying the show, I'd love it if you could write a review. In Apple Podcasts, just click on the show, scroll down to the bottom, and there you can leave five stars and a comment to help encourage new listeners to tune in. I'd also encourage you to share this episode with other grower friends or crew who you think would be inspiring for them. Thanks for listening.